What I want to talk to you tonight about is spiritual maturity. I want to talk about the marks of spiritual maturity. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to us mightily by your word and spirit, that you would grant clarity and understanding. We give you praise, glory, and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to you about spiritual maturity tonight. Spiritual maturity is about growing up in Christ Jesus. It's about coming to fullness in Christ Jesus. Paul here in Colossians chapter 1 verse 28, he gives us an explanation of everything that he does, everything that he says. He gives us an explanation really of his manifesto, of his philosophy of ministry. He says, let me tell you what I do. Everything I do boils down to this one verse. Number one, I preach Christ. He says, him we preach. We preach Jesus. There was a lot going on politically in the Greco-Roman world, but Paul says, I don't preach to you my political bent. He says, I preach Jesus. There was a lot of stuff going on in society at the time. He says, I don't preach to you my social bent. I preach Jesus. He says, if you want to understand what I preach, it's Jesus. The content of my preaching is Jesus. And he says, I stick as close to Christ and him crucified as I possibly can. He said in a number of places, another place, he said, I've determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. When I come into the house of God, I pretend that I don't know anything. All I know is Jesus. I pretend I don't know what's happened in the media. I pretend I don't know what's happened in the news. I pretend I don't even know what's happened in the church. I pretend that there's only one thing to know, and that's Jesus. Because at the end of the day, you can know what's happening in the news, and it'll do you no good unless you know Jesus. You can know what's happening in society, and it'll do you no good unless you know Jesus. But if you know Jesus, it doesn't matter what's happening in the news. If you know Jesus, it doesn't matter what's happening in society. And so Paul says, I stick to preaching Christ. Him we preach. He says, we preach Jesus, and then he explains how he preaches Jesus. Number one, we warn everybody. We warn everybody that you're going to have to deal with this Jesus. We warn everybody that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We warn everybody because we want everybody to understand that if there's one ultimate concern or ultimate priority of every life on earth, it's dealing with Jesus Christ. And that's going to become a priority at some point or another, and it's best that it become a priority for each and every one of us today, Paul says. So we preach Jesus and we warn every man, and we teach every man. We instruct every man because I want you to know something about this Jesus whom we preach. I want you to know who he is, and I want you to know who he was, and I want you to know what he did, and I want you to know what he does. I want you to know what he provided for us, and I want you to know what he is providing. I want you to know that he's in the place tonight, that wherever two or more are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst of him, in the midst of us. And so we preach Jesus, and we teach Jesus. We warn every man, and we teach every man so that we might present every man. Paul says, all of my teaching and all of my preaching and all that I do is so that we might present every man. What is he talking about? He's saying, I, whatever influence that I've had in your life, whatever influence that I've had in your life, my prayer and my desire is that I would have influenced you towards Jesus. That the direction of my influence would be the direction of Jesus. That at the last day, when you stand before God, you might be presented before God as one who is perfect or complete in Christ Jesus. And that, that if, if in any small way the influence of my ministry upon you would have been perfection in Christ, Paul says. That's my desire. That's my heart. And in the very next verse, he said, this is the reason why I labor the way I labor, according to his power, which works mightily in me. But he says, the purpose of this, we preach Jesus, warning every man and teaching every man that we might present every man 
perfect in Christ Jesus. Now that word perfect is an important word, but the first thing I want us to understand is that Paul says, my goal is to present you perfect in Christ Jesus, not perfect in the church, not perfect attendance. You know, it's really easy to focus on becoming perfect in the church, which means perfectly living up to the rules and regulations espoused by the local church. Perfect in attendance, perfect in knowing the songs, perfect in lifting your hand at the right angle and at the right time and knowing when it's not time to lift your hand because the last thing you want to be doing is lifting your hand when nobody else in the room is lifting their hands. It's, it's kind of embarrassing to be looking around. Oh, it ain't time for that yet. My bad. I want to be perfect in the church and so I want to go through every Bible study and I want to learn every verse and I want to listen to every sermon and, and it's really easy to, it, we find at times that, that what spiritual maturity actually looks like is not maturity in Christ, it looks more like maturity in the church. Because I go to the prayer meetings because the church has a prayer meeting. And I go to the worship service because the church has a worship service. And I go to the Bible study if the church has a Bible study. And I, and I read my Bible if the church is reading its Bible. And what's actually happening is that I'm growing up in the church and not necessarily growing up in Christ. And the litmus test of whether or not I'm actually growing up in Christ is what happens when I'm not around the church. What happens when I move to a new city where I don't have a church that has a Bible study, where I don't have a church yet and they don't have a Sunday morning service, and do I still pray the way I prayed when I was at the church, and do I still read the Bible the way I read the Bible the way I was at the church? And what, I, what tends to happen is we move to a new town or a new place and we lose all of the discipline we had and we suddenly realize I actually wasn't mature in Christ. I was mature in the church. I actually wasn't perfect in Christ. I was perfect in that church, meaning I can only act that way so long as I'm at that church. And what happens is we can end up breeding dependence. We can end up breeding um, codependence where I, I, I need the church and the church needs me. And so I can't be strong without the church and the, can't, the church can't be strong without me. And that's exactly the opposite of what the body of Christ is supposed to produce. What the body of Christ is supposed to produce is a self perpetuated spiritually disciplined living relationship with Jesus Christ. It's self-perpetuated means whether the church says it to do it or not, I do it. Why? Because I am a Christian. Because I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray not because the church said to pray, but because I desire Jesus. I study the Bible not because the church said to study the Bible, but because I desire Jesus. I worship not because the church said to worship, but because I desire Jesus. My wife and I, we have this, this passion and this, this value for being in a body of believers and worshiping on Sunday morning. It's a very important thing. Matter of fact, the Bible says not to forsake the gathering when you gather together to worship. And so even if we're out of town on vacation, we look for a church to go to, a place to go, to attend, to, to go worship together with a body of believers. On Sunday morning, we're going to be worshiping with the body of believers. Why? Not because our church said to come worship on Sunday, but because we have a value of worshiping with a body of believers. Wherever we are, whatever we do, we're going to be worshiping with a body of believers. Why? Because that is what a mature believer in Jesus Christ does. Paul says, my goal is not to mature you in the church. My goal is to mature you in Christ Jesus. My goal is not perfection in a system or in a particular context, but perfection in Christ Jesus. And when you've grown up in your faith in Christ Jesus, when you have come to a place of spiritual maturity in him, it doesn't matter where you are. God can take you and drop you in a nation where you're the only Christian in the entire nation, and you will do exactly the same thing. Why? Because you do it because of your love for Christ, not because you're a part of some program, not because you're a part of some discipleship group, not because you're a part of some, some organized body. 
maturity in Christ. And actually, I've already given it away, but the word perfection that Paul uses there is not used in the general, our, our typical Aristotelian sense. When you say something is perfect, you mean that it is aesthetically flawless. When you say something is perfect, if you read a piece of literature and you say it's perfect, you mean it has no grammatical error. When you, when you look at a painting and say it's perfect, it, it means that there's no mistakes. There's, you haven't colored outside of the lines. Perfection has to do with precision. Perfection in our culture has to do with uh, it has to do with flawlessness or preciseness and when Paul talks about presenting each one of us perfect in Christ the first thing we tend to think of is perfection is impossible because that means that there's no part of my life where I've scribbled outside of the lines where every part of my life is is absolutely flawless and and can I tell you that that's not what he's talking about at all okay like we will all have some places in our lives where we're coloring outside of the lines inadvertently, okay? That's not what it's about. When he's talking about perfection, he's using the word telos, and that Greek term telos means maturity or completion. It has to do with the completion of a goal. It has to do with the completion of a process of maturation. When he says present you perfect in Christ, he's talking about mature in Christ, strong in Christ, fully grown in Christ, complete in Christ, lacking nothing in Christ. It means no matter what comes or goes, you're strong in Christ. Come hell or hot water, you're going to walk with Christ. Paul says, my goal is to present you mature in Christ Jesus. I want to share with you some of the marks of spiritual maturity. What do I mean by spiritual maturity? First mark of spiritual maturity is spirit fullness. And spirit fullness is about the ongoing awareness, the daily awareness of the life-giving presence of Christ in you. Spirit fullness is about living in the continual awareness of the life-giving presence of Christ in you. It's about waking up every day to the presence of Christ. It's about communing with Christ every day. It doesn't mean that you're always feeling overwhelmed by the power. It doesn't mean you, you wake up and get slain in the spirit or you wake up speaking in tongues or like shaking. And, you know, it's not about continual prophetic ecstasy, but it's about an indwelling of the spirit of God. That every day you're constantly aware of the fact that God is with me and he's in me. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I'm his own. It's this constant daily awareness of the presence of God. Do you know that Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 that you were once dead in your transgressions and sins in which you once walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Being dead in your transgressions and sins, it meant that you were dead to the spirit but you were alive to the flesh. And the flesh is the sinful nature. When you're dead to the Spirit, it means that you are completely insensitive to the Spirit of God. It means that God could speak to you and tell you he loves you, but you don't hear it because when you're dead, you can't hear. It means God could give you a hug, but you don't feel loved because when you're dead, you don't feel. It means God could write you a love letter, but you can't even read it because when you're dead, you can't read. It means God could visit you and come to your house, but you wouldn't even let him in the door because when you're dead, you can't hear anyone knocking at the door. It means God could come sit right next to you and you wouldn't even feel his presence. Why? Because when you're dead, you don't sense the presence of anyone. When you're 
dead in your transgressions and sins, it means you're dead to God. It means he's completely on the outside of the sphere of your experience. The person next to you might be experiencing God, but you have no experience of God because you're dead in your transgressions and sins. But on the other side, you're alive to the flesh. You're dead to God, but you're alive to sin. And when I'm alive to sin, it means when sin tries to entice me, I hear it and I follow. Why? Because I'm alive to sin. I'm sensitive to sin. When sin speaks to me, I hear it. When sin writes me a letter, I read it. When sin knocks on my door, I hear it and open the door and invite it in, and it comes in and eats with me. And so when I'm alive to sin and dead to God, I'm sensitive to sin and insensitive to God. However, when I'm alive to God but dead to sin, which is the other side of that paradigm, I'm sensitive to God and insensitive to the voice of sin. It means that when God speaks to me, I hear it, but when sin speaks to me, I don't even hear it. It means that when God speaks love to me, I receive it, but when sin offers me something, I don't receive it. It means when God knocks on my door, I hear it and I open the door, but when sin knocks on my door, I can't hear it and I don't open the door. Being alive to God is about being sensitive to his presence. It means when he tries to love me, I feel loved. It means when he tries to speak to me, I, 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 I hear his voice. It means when I speak to him, I feel heard. It's living in the continual awareness of the fact that God is with me. And he's with me not just for a moment, but he's with me all the time. And because of that, I have a daily walk with him and a sense of fellowship with him and ongoing discourse with God. That's what spirit fullness is all about. That's the first mark of spiritual maturity. The second mark of spiritual maturity is boldness. Now, the word boldness in the Greek is parecia. Say parecia. Parecia is the ability to stand up and do what you need to do and say what you need to say and then sit down knowing that you've done it and said it. (laughs) Boldness is the ability to stand up and do what you need to do, say what you need to say, and then sit down knowing that you've done it and said it. It means that when you walk out of the room, you can walk out of the room with the confidence of knowing I did what I needed to do and I said what I needed to say. Boldness is that quality of of, of being conscious of God's empowerment to do God's will. Boldness is that sense of divine empowerment to do God's will. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were standing before the Sanhedrin. Now, mind you, the disciples of Jesus, the apostles of Jesus were very young men. They were probably in their late teens or early 20s, which is very important because the rabbis of ancient Israel were at at, at the youngest in their mid-40s. You had to go through a rabbinic process called discipleship, Discipleship was when you became a student of one of the rabbis. That started at about 15 years old and ended at about 30 years old. And then when you became 30 and graduated from that discipleship process, you became what they called a teacher of the law or a Torah teacher. You spent about 15 years building a reputation amongst the people before they could call you rabbi. So by the time you were rabbi, you're at least 45 years old, sometimes older. Sometimes it took you longer to build that kind of a reputation. And once you became a rabbi, then you could make disciples. You can approach 15-year-olds and invite them to come and become your disciples. Jesus approaches a bunch of 15-year-olds... 15 or 16-year-olds, these young men that had been rejected by the rabbis of the ancient world of the first century, who the the rabbis had sent back to their fishing boats with their fathers and back to the the lifestyle of their fathers, the businesses of their fathers, Jesus approaches these these rejects and says, come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. But his process didn't take 15 years. It only took three years. And then three years later, they're about 18 or 19 years old, and he says to them, now go make disciples of all nations. Translation, you're all rabbis now. 
which is crazy. Right? I mean, they're like 18 year olds. Are you crazy? Are you kidding me? But he says, don't go make rabbis of the next crop of 15 year olds. Make rabbi, go, go make disciples of all nations. Everybody in the world now, you go make disciples of all of them. And then he ascends into heaven before their very eyes. What kind of task is that? How self-conscious do you feel at 18, 19 years old? And now they're, they're, they're going to the temple to pray at the gate beautiful in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John, they meet the man lame from his mother's womb. And Peter looks at him and says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have given to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And they heal this lame man. And, the man is, and then they get taken to jail because they healed a guy at the temple. Then they're brought in before the Sanhedrin. I want you to understand how intimidating this was. The Sanhedrin was the, the ruling council. It was the, the religious leaders of the day. These were old scholars, theologians, and, and rulers. These were, these, the, it was the great politicians of their day, coupled with the great, the, the great scholars and theologians of their day. This was a very intimate, and there were 72 of them. And Peter and John are brought in front of 72 scholars, and they're like 18, 19 years old. I mean, I, I, just, I just want you to understand the intimidation factor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they warn them, don't you dare preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And Peter says, you tell us whether it's better to obey man or obey God. Yeah. <laughs> La da 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 da. <laughs> I was like, that's thug life right there. <laughs> They're like, dang. The scripture said, when they saw the boldness the parousia yeah, yeah, yeah. of Peter and John. Yeah. When they saw the body, the parousia, when they saw the boldness, the fact that they had the boldness to stand up and say what they needed to say and do what they needed yeah, to do, yeah, yeah, yeah. unabashed, unashamed. Yeah. They saw the boldness and it said they marveled when they realized that these men had never studied letters. Yeah. The word in the Greek is actually idiotes, which is where we get our word idiots from. They realized that they were idiots, meaning they had not gone through a 15-year rabbinic process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't have a master's degree from seminary. Yeah. They hadn't studied Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, but yet they're standing before this body of scholars going, you tell us whether it's better to obey man or obey God. They're like, well, if you preach in that name, we're going to kill you. You're going to have to kill me. Yeah. Yeah. La, da, 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 da. <laughs> then they pulled out the blunt. They were like... <laughs> <laughs> When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they marveled. Yeah, yeah. They marveled because these men had never studied letters, but they took note that they had been with Jesus. Yeah. How did they get the boldness to do what they needed to do? How did they get the boldness to say what they needed to say? Boldness comes from being with Jesus. Yeah. So the first mark of spiritual maturity is spiritfulness. The second mark of spiritual maturity is boldness. Yeah. The third mark of spiritual maturity is wisdom and understanding. Yeah. Wisdom and understanding is the ability to see beneath the surface of every situation. Yeah. When you cannot see beneath the surface of every situation, you can feel stuck in certain circumstances. You can feel trapped in certain circumstances. You can feel abandoned by God in certain circumstances. You can feel like your life is falling apart in certain circumstances. I was talking to a friend of mine, and he said, I just don't understand why God keeps kicking me in the teeth. And I said to him, if God ever kicked you in the teeth, you would know. <laughs> Trust me, God has not kicked you in the teeth. If, if God kicks you in the teeth, your life would be over. You cannot... 
If God kicked you in the teeth, you would not live to tell that story. This is not what's happening in your life. Joseph was a guy who, who might have been tempted to feel that God had kicked him in the teeth. But instead, he simply made a decision to simply trust God and to believe. And what happened at the end of his life when his brothers came to him and they begged him, they said, please forgive us for what we did. His brothers had sold him into slavery and all of that. And, and, and you know, it was that 30-something year process. And, and they come back to him and they said, please forgive us for what we did. And he said, no, no, no. You meant it for evil, but God. God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Translation, I have the wisdom and understanding to see around, beneath, beside, above my situation. I'm able to see a deeper work of the Spirit of God. I can look at a situation and it looks all bad, but when I get some wisdom and understanding, I'm able to see beneath the surface of that situation. I'm able to see that I can't be stuck because God is never stuck. If I were stuck, God would have to be stuck. Do you know that the Bible says, He who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it into the day of Jesus Christ. Do you know that the Bible says we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who are the called according to his purpose. If I were stuck, God would have to have stopped working for my good. If I were stuck, God would have to have stopped his good work in me. If I were stuck, God would have to have stopped being on my side, walking with me. God would have had to walk away from me for me to be stuck. Wisdom and understanding is the ability to see by the Spirit that there's a deeper work of God going on. That what looks like demotion is often promotion. That what looks like everything is falling apart is often the sign that everything's coming together. And that what looks like, uh, that something that looks bad is often good, but conversely, something that looks good is often not so good. And so we need wisdom and understanding by the Spirit. Sometimes the wisdom of the Spirit will cause you to say no to the very thing that the world is saying yes to. I'll never forget when I was uh, graduating from high school and I had won a singing contest and I was offered a, 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 I was offered a, a, um, a, a deal and a, a contract and a signing bonus and a tour, okay? And... Um, I knew it was an, I knew at that moment that this was a significant moment. Yeah. It was kind of like all of my musical dreams were about to come to pass. But there was a check in my heart, like there was something in my heart that said, my, this decision right here will drastically alter my life one way or another. Yeah. Yeah. Like this moment is an important moment. And so I didn't talk to my mom, I didn't talk to my dad. I just went to my church and I got a room and I stayed in that room for three days, and I sought the face of God. And I just took bottles of water with me. I was 18 years old. But I realized at that moment, I need to hear from God. This is an important moment. In the natural, it's just all good. In the natural, it's like, dude, they were going to give me a $5,000, you know, check right now and, and a tour and a, and a deal, right? Like, this is like, you know, dude, I'm 18 years old. I'm not even 18 yet. I was 17 years old. I was just about to graduate high school, and it all looks good. But for some reason, there was something in my heart that said, I, I better check with God. I better make sure that this is, and, and I went and I prayed through for three days, and God spoke to me so clearly and said, this is not for you. And so when I came out of there, I, I turned it down. And my parents were actually proud of me. Like they were, they were like, that's my son. That's what we're talking about. But I had other family members that were not proud of me at all. They were like, you stupid, you big dummy. And I was ridiculed at the next family dinner. And I had cousins call. It was funny. I had a, I had a cousin who was 30 years old. He was calling me a mama's boy. But he, he still lived with his mama, and he was 30 years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my wife's telling me, move it on now, move it on, move it on. <laughs> 
But you know what? When God gives you wisdom and understanding, it doesn't bother you anymore. When you understand that there's something deeper that that cannot be seen by the natural eyes and it's not going to be understood by the people around me, but I know that this is the will of God. And and so I made a decision, and, and I look back on that now and realize that had I said yes to that, my life would have gone a completely different direction, and I would not be where I am right now. Wisdom and understanding is the ability to see deeper than the surface yeah. of a situation. Yes. Next is righteousness and holiness. Yeah. The next mark of spiritual maturity is righteousness and holiness. Those sound like $50 theological terms, but they actually mean something very simple. Righteousness is number one, an internal rightness with God that yeah. results in, a, in an external rightness of your way of life. It means that you've been made right on the inside so you can live right on the outside. That's what righteousness means. Righteousness is actually uh, the fulfillment of your covenant obligation. It simply means that it's, it's, it's the right way to live because of your covenant with God. Yeah. Uh, it, that's all it means. If, if Ying and I, uh, if our properties were right next to each other and, and Ying and I were walking right alongside the border between our two properties and we're having a talk one night, and then we come upon a well that neither of us have ever discovered before. Look at that. We got this well here, this right here between our two properties. Well, the question is, is it Ying's well or is it my well? And uh, so we discover, okay, it's, it's on, on the right, so it's Ying, it's your well. Okay, so I'm going to make covenant with you, Ying, and Ying and I make covenant. What we do is we take an animal and we cut, cut it in half. Yeah, it's pretty gory. Making, making covenant was not, it was not a nice thing. It's like, yeah, we need an animal. Say, Come here, animal. You know, you just grab an animal. You cut it right in half. You lay the pieces, and then Ying and I would take hands and walk between the pieces, stating the terms of our covenant. The terms of the covenant would be, Ying, I acknowledge that this well belongs to you, and if any of my men drink from this well without me knowing about it, I will pay you such and such for the water, and uh, if my men, they know about it, we'll ask you before we take any water from this well. This is your well. Okay. Now Ying and I have a covenant, which is a limited contract or a limited re- uh, agreement between Ying and I. Now that we've got that covenant, in order for me to be righteous, I've got to live up to that covenant. I've got to do right by that covenant. So I am unrighteous if I sneak over there and take water out of it in the middle of the night. But I am righteous if I abide by the terms of the covenant that Ying and I have entered into. So righteousness is, number one, identifying the fact that I've made covenant with God by faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and I've got to live rightly according to that covenant. And when I made covenant with God, actually God made covenant with me. But that's another sermon. We don't have time to get into that. But I've got to live right because God has made me right. That's enough. Now, if I live right because God has made me right, then I will live differently. Number one, differently than I used to live. And that's what the word holy means. The word holy literally means different. Holiness is differentness. It first of all means you live in a way that's different from the way you used to live, but then secondly, it means you live different from the way the world lives. Righteousness and holiness, these are the marks of spiritual maturity. All right, then the final mark of spiritual maturity that I'd like to talk about today is uh, direction and clarity. Direction and clarity means that you have the ability to know which direction God is leading you. It means that you live your life on God's side, not on anybody else's side, but God's side. And you know where God is leading you. You know, one of the the stories in the Bible that I love the most is uh, Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. Uh, we find it in Joshua chapter 5, closer to the bottom of the chapter. And, and there's this verse where Joshua's standing outside of Jericho, and he's trying to strategize. He's trying to find a weak place in the wall. He's trying to figure out how are we going to get in there. And all of a sudden, he sees a man standing with his drawn sword. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's crazy, right? I mean, he's standing there looking at Jericho, and he looks over here, and there's a dude standing with the sword drawn. Yeah. And Joshua's like, so Joshua's a gangster too, so he walks over to him and goes, are you with us or are you with them? And listen to the man's answer, no. <laughs> That's what the dude says, he said, nah, nah. Are you with us or are you with them? Nah, nah, nah. Wrong question, Joshua. Are you on our side or you are on their side? Are you loyal to us or are you loyal to them? And the man said, no. I'm not here for you and I'm not here for them. I'm here for God. He said, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. That's why I'm here. I'm not here to be loyal to you. I'm here to be loyal to him. The question is, whose side are you on? Are you on his side or not? That's the only thing that matters. Are you loyal to Jesus? He said, all right. Josh is like, okay. All right. So what does the Lord command? He said, take off your shoes for the ground upon which you stand is holy. And Joshua got down on his knees and he, he took off his sandals and he stood there barefoot. I don't know why I'm barefoot, but that's what God said to be barefoot. I'm just barefoot. You know what's crazy is in 1980, 1990, 19, what year was it? 1995, I went to Israel and we went to visit the ruins of Jericho. And we're standing out there, it was like 127 degrees or something outland. I mean, I'm exaggeration. I mean, you know, I got the gift of exaggeration, but it was, uh, <laughs> it was hot. It was hot, you know, and we don't, our people don't like hotness that much. We can't, you know, we need some shade. And uh, I'm stand, I wanted to stay on the bus, honestly. But uh, my buddy, he comes over to me and he opens his Bible to Joshua chapter 5 and he reads that passage of scripture. Yeah. And all of a sudden I realize that we were standing right in the place where Joshua was standing when he saw the army of the Lord. And all of a sudden, the atmosphere changed. And all of a sudden, I could feel the holiness of God in that place. Isn't it crazy that it looked like I was standing on a ruin, but actually I was standing on holy ground? How crazy is that? I'm supposed to be talking about direction. I don't know where that came from, but clarity and direction. <laughs> well, clarity and direction starts with having Jesus as your ultimate loyalty. Clarity and direction comes from knowing that I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what. And wherever Jesus leads me, that's where I'm going to go. And I'm going to trust Jesus to lead me. Trust is the ability to follow God without the aid of the intellect. It means I don't have to understand it. I don't have to know where I'm going. I just have to know who I'm following. It means I don't have to know where I'm going. I just got to know who I'm going with. It means all my questions don't have to be answered, but I'm with the author and finisher of my faith. And he's going to fill in the gaps as we go. You must understand, you got to get this. The Bible says Satan is the author of confusion. But Jesus is the author and finisher of your faith. There's two books. Two books on your life are being written in the supernatural simultaneously. The first book is being written by Satan, and it's called Confusion. And the second book is being written by Jesus, and it's called Faith. Yeah. Satan is writing a book called Kevin's Confusion. And every day, he's trying to read you passages from that book yeah. to convince you that you're confused, that you don't know what to do, yeah. that you don't know where you are, that you don't know where you're going, yeah. that you're not qualified to know where you're going, yeah. that you've, made it, you've done everything wrong, and you're in a bad place, and everything's wrong. But Jesus is on the other side reading you passages from his book. It's called Kevin's Faith. And he's reading you from his book to tell you that you're strong in him, that he's with you, and that you don't have to know where you're going. You just have to know that you're with him. Yeah. Amen. Amen. 
You know Jeremiah 29, 12, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11? Yeah. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I have for you, says the Lord, thoughts of good, not of evil, yeah. to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. Yeah. That's powerful. Like God wants to give you direction. Yeah. God wants you to have clarity. Yeah. You can have clarity about where you're going. You might not know where it leads or how it's going to go, yeah. but you can know that I'm following Jesus in this direction and that if Jesus is going in this direction, this is the best place for me to be. Because if there's one thing that we all must learn, it's that the safest place to be is in the center of God's will for my life. Yes. And sometimes the center of God's will, and what we found is that sometimes being in the center of God's will will lead us into some of the most dangerous places on earth. Yeah. But it's the safest place to be yeah. because I'm with Jesus. Amen. 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 Now the question is, how do I get some of this spiritual maturity stuff? Because yeah. yeah. if you're like me, uh, when I hear a sermon like this, when I hear scriptures like this, I'm convicted because I feel like, man, you know, I mean, that spirit fullness stuff, I need more of that because, yeah. I mean, I don't always have a sense of God's presence. Yeah. And, and some of that boldness stuff, I need some of that because I don't always know what I'm doing. Yeah. And, and some of that, that uh, wisdom and understanding stuff, I need some of that because sometimes I feel like I'm stuck and I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. And some of that uh, righteousness and holiness stuff, I need some of that because I got some stuff in my life that I'm trying to break. And some of that direction and clarity stuff, I need some of that. How do I get that so that I know where I'm going? How do I get this spiritual maturity stuff? How do I become more spiritually mature? Well, what I want to propose to you tonight is that there's one key to spiritual maturity. It is the key that opens the door. And once you go through that door, there's a lot on the other side of that door. But the key that opens the door to spiritual maturity is repentance. Now, repent, the, uh, repentance doesn't mean what most of us think it means. We think it means to say, I'm sorry. Uh, no, it's too late to apologize. <laughs> it's too late. <laughs> it, it's not about saying you're sorry. That's not what repentance means. It doesn't mean I'm sorry. Repentance means something much different than I'm sorry. And if you're, if you, how many of you are married? Okay, there's, there's a, full, a few of you are married. <laughs> so if you're married, you know um, how many times has your spouse apologized? No, let, no, let me say it differently. Wives, how many times has your husband apologized? <laughs> when you've been married for a long time, I'm sorry just stops meaning much <laughs> if you're a wife. Because <laughs> it's like, you know, I mean, don't just be saying I'm sorry. It's so easy for us husbands. Like, baby, I'm sorry. <laughs> Sometimes I just look at my wife and I know I'm in trouble. I'd be like, baby, I'm sorry. She's like, for what? I'm like, I don't know. What am I in trouble for? I don't even know what I did, but I know I did something and it wasn't right. <laughs> And I must do better. I will do better, baby. I'm sorry. <laughs> and that just doesn't mean much. Yeah. What my wife tells me all the time is I don't want to just hear I'm sorry. What I want to know, because my wife, she will interrogate you. I'd be like, baby, I'm sorry. She's like, what are you sorry for? I'd be like, I'm sorry for the way I said that. She goes, well, why did you say it that way? I'm like, well, um, cause, cause, cause you know, I wasn't right. Well, why weren't you right? <laughs> like, she's like, I want to know why you're sorry. I want to know if you know why you're sorry. <laughs> I want to know if you understand what you did. The other last week, we went walking with my mom and dad at Lake Elizabeth in Fremont, and uh, and my mom and and Sonny took off ahead of me and my dad, and and I was trying to keep up, but my dad was walking slower, so I had to lag behind and stay with him. But seeing my wife and my mom walk off like that was the scariest thing in the world because I thought, what are they talking about? Because because every time my mom and my wife talk, I'm in trouble. 
for something. I know I did something, and I'm going to get it. <laughs> I wasn't in trouble. I was thankful. Praise the Lord. I must, I must be doing good, huh? <laughs> I must be all right, at least. All right. No, repentance is not about saying you're sorry. There's two components to repentance. We talked about the first component of repentance last week. The first component of repentance is surrender. And surrender is simply coming to God saying, I don't know what to do. You tell me what to do. I don't have the plan. You tell me what the plan is. You know, I've, I've had over the years a lot of people come to me and say, would you disciple me? And sometimes I'll say, yeah, let's meet. And then we meet, and as soon as, I'm, as soon as we sit down at the table, they start telling me what the plan is. Okay, here's the plan. We're going to meet every week for the next six months. I'm going to read these three books, and then I'm going to need you to. I'm like, well, hold on a second. You're, you're asking me to disciple you, but you're giving me the plan? Yeah. That's how we do with God sometimes. Yeah. We come to God, and we, go, we come to church, and we go, okay, God, here's the plan. I'm going to come every Sunday. And then I'm going to give a tithe. And then uh, you're going to fix my life, right? Uh, right? Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. I'll add an offering to the tithe. I'll come to CG too, okay? If I come to CG, will you, will you add a blessing to my life? You know, will you, will you help me get a better job? <laughs> right? We come trying to bargain with God. We come to God like we're trying to give him the plan. That's not surrender. That's not repentance. Repentance is coming to God with a, from a place of surrender. Lord, you tell me what the plan is. I don't know what the plan is. You tell me what to do. Yeah, yeah. Here I am. Yeah. The second component of repentance is desperation. Yeah. Desperation is what I want to focus on for the remainder of our time tonight, and I will not keep you long, hopefully. Desperation begins with the presupposition that my, the ultimate concern of my life is being right with God. Yeah. Desperation begins with the presupposition that the ultimate concern of my life is being right with God. You know, a lot of people come to church for the wrong reasons. They want to be right, but they want to be right with the wrong person. Yeah. A lot of people come to church because they want to be right with themselves. Yeah. Why do you come to church? Because I've been feeling bad about myself, and I've got so much uh, low self-confidence, and I've been dealing with anxiety, and I, and I just want to get past my anxiety, and I've been dealing with depression. I want to get past my depression, and, and I, you come to church because you want to be right with you. Uh, that's going to lead to disillusionment because six years later, you're still not going to be right with you. If you come here to get right with you, six years from now, you're still not going to be right with you. Twelve years from now, you're still not going to be right with you. And, and then you're going to be disillusioned with Christianity. Well, I tried it, and it doesn't work. I tried serving Jesus, and it doesn't work. My life hasn't gotten any better. It hasn't gotten any better because you're trying to get right with the wrong person. Yeah. Uh, some people come to church because they want to get right with another person. Like uh, some people come to church because uh, my girlfriend left me or... My wife told me if I don't start coming to church, she's going to leave me. Or because uh, I lost my job because I, I messed up on something. And I'm, I, I want to be a better person, and I want to be right with this person. Uh, can I tell you, uh, just because you come to church don't mean your girlfriend's going to take you back. Uh, just because you come to church don't mean your wife ain't going to leave you. Uh, just because you come to church, uh, if you come to church to get right with another person, uh, that's going to leave you in a place of disillusionment because don't nobody care that you're coming to church. Like the people in your life are not looking at you going, wow, she's going to church. Huh? She's doing, we're going to be good now because you're going to church. <laughs> no, it doesn't work like that. It's not going to work like that. You're coming to church for the wrong reason. Yeah. Uh, there's one reason to come to church because I want to get right with God. That is, got to make a decision that the ultimate concern with my, of my life is not being right with me and not being right with you. The ultimate concern of my life is being right with God. Yeah. And when I start with the presupposition that no matter what, I've got to get right with God, the result is desperation. 
Now, desperation has two components. The first component is urgency. It must be now. Desperation is the urgency that says, I got to get right with God now. And the second is desire. Desire means I deeply want this. I want this with all my heart. Desperation is I deeply desire to get right with God now. I deeply desire to be right in my heart with God now. I deeply desire to be right in my heart with God now. And desperation and surrender, when those two things collide, repentance is the result. And when repentance transpires in the heart of any man or woman or child, heaven always moves. Heaven always moves in the face of repentance. Heaven cannot resist true repentance. I'm telling you, God opens the windows of heaven, and he, he will tear down the heavens to get to you when you hit that place of repentance. When you hit that place where your heart opens before God and says, God, I need you right now, and I'm ready to surrender everything right now. When God looks at your heart and sees surrender and desperation, that it, those are the, the components of repentance, and heaven moves on your behalf in that place. You want to see transformation in your life. You want to see something change in your life. You come to God and you come to that place of surrender and that place of desperation. And when those two things come together, God says, now they're ready. Now you're ready. Now you're ready. Sometimes it just takes me a long time to get ready. Sometimes it feels like change or transformation is something that takes a long time. I need to say to you tonight that being in the church for a long time will not make you mature. You got, I'll never forget my uncle was my uncle was giving me a driving lesson when I was 16 years old when I got my learner's permit. He took me out in his Lincoln Mark 8. And uh, he, say, he said to me, he said, uh, he said, Benjamin, don't think that just because you drive for a long time that you're going to be able to drive well. Because my wife, Carmen, has been driving for 40 years and yet can't drive. <laughs> I'm sorry I said her name. Auntie Carmen, I love you if you ever listen to this. <laughs> but don't think that being in the church for a long time will make you mature. Going to church will not make you a better Christian any more than going to Taco Bell will make you a Mexican. It's the transformation of the heart that is required. And the transformation of the heart will only happen at the place of repentance. And sometimes it simply takes a long time to get to that place of true repentance. Sometimes it takes a long time to cultivate the surrender and desperation necessary for a response from heaven. But once those, once that, that once, once those, once that happens, I can't find my words today. Once that happens, heaven moves, and all of a sudden, transformation happens in your life in a moment. Yes, yes. Don't think God needs 10 years to change you. He can change you in a moment. Yes, yes. Don't think God needs 20 years to fix you. He could fix you in a moment. Yes. Don't think God needs 15 years to take you to a higher place in him. He could take you to a higher place in a moment. Don't think that God needs a long time. He only needs a moment, but he needs a moment of repentance. A moment of surrender and desperation. And so the most important spiritual work in our lives is cultivating deeper surrender and cultivating deeper desperation. This is the work of the spiritual life is waking up each and every day and assessing my level of desperation and assessing my level of surrender and saying, God, I don't, feel, I don't have that desperation for you. Would you help me be desperate for you? 
God, I don't feel that desire for you, but I desire to desire you. And so, God, I desire to desire to desire you. God, I don't feel that desire for the desire of you, but I feel a desire for the desire for the desire for you. And, and God, I don't feel the desire for the desire for desire, but Lord, I feel a longing for a longing for a longing for a longing for you. I don't care how many, how many steps out you are. I don't care how many degrees of separation there are between you and a desire for God. If you simply start with the desire you have, if you simply start with what you've got and say, God, this is all I've got. I've got this little bit of desire. I've got a desire to desire to desire to desire to know you, but I'm going to start there, God. Would you deepen that? And if you would simply steward it. So you remember the, the parable of the, fig, of the, of the uh, mustard seed where Jesus said the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, but when it grows, it becomes the largest of all garden plants. Do you realize that in order for a mustard seed to grow, you got to plant it in the ground and then you got to water it 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 and then you got to water it. That's what you got to do is start with your level of desire that you have right now. Maybe you just got a little bit of desire for God. Maybe you just have a little bit of desperation for God. Put that in the ground and water it every day. Activate it every day. Use it to pray every day. Open your Bible every day and activate that, that mustard seed of desire for God, that mustard seed of surrender and watch it grow. Watch it grow. You know what? That's my wife's testimony. Because I don't know how many of you know, my wife used to, used to snort Coke. Like, in her BC days, she used to get drunk, and she used to do lines of Coke all night long. Yes, this godly woman right here. Like, if you look at her, you wouldn't see it. But I'm telling you, that's who she was. It was before I met her. But you know what changed her life? What changed her life was not some supernatural thunderbolt that came from heaven and zapped her with holiness, and all of a sudden she was different. What changed her life was not six angelic visitations and five revelations. What changed her life was her sister asking her to simply cultivate that tiny seed of desire for God that she had in her heart. And I'm telling you, every human being has it. Every human being has it. There's a God-shaped void in every human heart. And if you would simply start with that, with your, with your present level of knowledge of your hunger for God, there, there's some part of you that hungers, that desires to know who God is. And her sister told her what to do with that little seed of desire. She said, every day, take out your Bible, read one chapter, grab one verse, write it at the top of your journal, and then write a prayer to God using the words of that verse. I just want you to do that every day. It'll take you 10 minutes. And my wife would come home from the class club and she would stumble in drunk hair this high <laughs> mini skirt up to here <laughs> down to here right? <laughs> you know and she would think I'm going to bed because I'm drunk. But then she thought, no, I told my sister I would do this. So she'd get out her Bible, and she'd get out her journal, and she'd read one chapter, and she'd write that one verse at the top, and then she would write, God, sorry, I'm drunk again. <laughs> If you want me, come get me. If you want to change me, you're going to have to change me because I cannot change myself. That is the definition of surrender. I can't change me, but you can change me. I can't fix me, but you can fix me. And she did that every day, and over a six-month period of time, it happened so gradually that she didn't notice. But all of a sudden, she looked back and realized six months later that she had no desire for drugs. She had no desire for drunkenness. She had no desire for clubbing. She had no desire for the things of the world, the stuff where she was stuck and couldn't pull herself out. God had broken all that stuff off of her life. God had changed the very operating system of her desires. And all of a sudden, she was a flame of desire for God, and she was a flame of desperation 
desperation for the Spirit of God. And she was just, she was full of surrender. And God was able to take her life and use it for His glory. Why? Because she simply made a decision to cultivate that seed of desperation, that seed of surrender that she already has. Let me tell you something. David said in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul longs for you, O God. I'm telling you that everybody in this room, matter of fact, everybody on this earth has a soul that hungers and thirsts for God. Your soul thirsts for God. I'm telling you that. Sometimes you mistake your hunger for God for a, a hunger for something else, but I'm telling you that underneath that is a hunger for the living God. Obey your thirst. <laughs> you got to obey your thirst, but you got to obey the right thirst. And the right thirst is your thirst for the living God. If you would simply make a decision, I've got a little bit of desperation for God, I'm going to cultivate it. I'm going to take that, I'm going to act on it, and I'm going to act on it consistently every day. I'm telling you, when I was in, when I was in uh, 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 Sunday school, when I was a little kid, they taught us a song that taught me everything that I need to know about growing in Christ. And it goes like this. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow Grow, grow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. And that's it. <laughs> that's it. If you read your Bible and you pray every day, yeah. come hell or hot water, you mess up, get out your Bible, read it, and pray. Everything fall apart in your life, read your Bible and pray. Yeah, yeah. You hit a trying situation, read your Bible yes, and pray. Yes. You get sick in your body, read your Bible and pray. pray. Your mama's mad at you, read your Bible <laughs> and pray. Yeah. Your daddy don't want you, read your Bible and pray. <laughs> Even if your life turns into a country western song, read your Bible and pray every day. Cultivate the seed of desire for God. Yeah and the seed of surrender that's already in your heart because whether you're aware of it or not, you desperately long to surrender to God. Yeah, 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 yeah. Every human being desperately yearns within the depths of our being mm. to worship God. Yeah. It's what you were created for. Yes. And the essence of worship is surrender. Yes. And not only surrender, mm. but desperation. Jesus. Desperation. Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, I thank you today. I thank you that you're here, and I thank you that you love each and every one of us more than we could ever yeah, imagine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come into this house right now. It's okay. Where's, where's Grace? Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd move on every heart and you'd move on every soul. Yeah. And that you would release within us this night a deeper level of surrender. Amen. And a deeper level of desperation for you. Yes. Yes. Lord, you're the one that we adore. You're the one that we desire so often. So often Satan fools us into thinking we desire other things. So often Satan tricks us into thinking that we desire other things. But today I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would grant clarity to every mind and every heart. That we would be able to see that the one thing we desire more than anything is to know you. 
that the only thing that would satisfy the desires of our hearts is knowing you. Knowing you. And so, Holy Spirit, speak to every mind and speak to every heart right now. And I pray, I pray that decisions would be made today. There's some of you in this room right now, you say, I'm not the best Christian. I don't know if I even am a Christian. You might be here tonight and you might think, I don't even know why I come to church. I'm, I, I haven't decided to do this thing. And sometimes people look at me and think I've decided to do this thing. I don't know if I've decided to do it. But the reason you come is because there's something in you that desires to know God. You might not even be aware of that thing, but it's there. But if you were honest with yourself, you would acknowledge that there are certain moments, waking moments of the night, maybe moments early in the morning, maybe moments of deepest sorrow in which you become aware of the fact that your soul longs for God. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move on every heart and that you would release within every heart the resolve to act on that desire. Jesus, you said that if we seek you, we'll find you when we search for you with all of our hearts. And I pray, Father, that more than anything else, every one of us would leave this place tonight with the decision, I'm going to seek you, that I might find you. I'm going to seek you, that I might find you, because you're the one I need, and you're the one I desire. Yeah, with every eye closed, I just want to release this prayer. And before I pray, if you are aware of that desperation, God, God, I am desperate for more of you in my life. Will you just stand in your, in your place right now? And I want to release this prayer over you if you are already aware of that desperation. And maybe some of you, you so want to feel that desperation. God, I want to feel the desperation. I want to want to want you, but I don't feel it. If you are there and you want to say, God, I want to want it. I want to feel the desperation, but I don't know how. If that's you, will you stand in your place right now? And I will pray for you. So spirit of God, your sons and daughters are standing and they are desperate. God, we have surrendered and we have desperation. And some of us, God, some of us as where I was over 30 years ago, God, I want to want you, but I can't feel it. I want to change, but I don't know how. But God, I want to want you. But God, but God, I want to have that desperation. God, that desperation is buried deep inside. Will you unearth it, God? Will you, God, make that desperation come alive within me spirit of God we ask tonight God we come before you as we are saying we are nothing apart from you we can do nothing apart from you God and God we ask that you you would awaken our spirits God that we would be awakened to God that we would be awakened to your spirit Lord God sometimes I look over and I see my brothers and sisters God lifting their hands and I could tell they could sense the presence of God and I desperately want to 
I want to feel you. I want to know you. God, in that, in those, right now, God, your sons and daughters are desperately crying out for the awareness of your presence. So, Spirit of God, as we pray, as we, as we stand, God, before you, release Awaken, awaken, Father, in the name of Jesus. Awaken the desperations that is inside of us, God. God, those that are standing in the front to the back, even those that are seated, Lord. Awaken the desperation for more of you, Lord. And Father, begin the work. Begin the work today, God, that you will fan, you will fan our faith, that you will fan our desperation, Lord, that we would see you, that that we would feel you, God. That we would receive the boldness, God. That we would receive the clarity, Lord. That day by day, step by step, that we would sense you leading us, Lord. So, Father, we thank you that you have a special gift for your sons and daughters tonight. And that gift is this, that I have prepared a fan to fan the desperation that is inside of you. I have a special gift for you tonight. Will you just, just receive it right now? Whether you feel anything or not, just receive that gift. Receive that gift. As you receive that gift, you're going to be able to feel it more and more. You're going to be awakened. You're going to lay in bed, and all of a sudden, you're going to want him. And you're going to feel like... God, I've never felt this way before. God, I've never felt this way before. And you're going you're gonna to find yourself on your knees next to your bed as you receive that gift of desperation. Father, give. Give to every son, every daughter the gift of desperation that you have prepared for us tonight. So we receive it by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Give God a shout of praise.